السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين صلى الله وسلم وبارك على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد So welcome to another lesson of QP Inshallah ta'ala We are on verse number 2 of Surah Al-Nas And last week we kind of like started the word for word tafsir of this particular surah um, And we covered verse number 1 which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, uh, Say, I seek refuge in the Lord of mankind. And I think the point that we finished on, or one of the final points that we discussed anyway, is how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will go on into this surah by mentioning three of his names, right? Three of his particular characteristics and names subhanahu wa ta'ala that he specifies in this surah, which are Rabb, which is Lord, Malik, which is King, Ilah, which is God. Right? These are the three characteristics of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that are mentioned within the surah. Sorry, Akhi. I forgot. Can you just pull that back, please? So, these are the three um, names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that are mentioned within the surah. That Allah azza wa is the Lord of mankind, the King of mankind, and the God of mankind. And some of the scholars of tafsir, they ask the question, why does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala specify these three? Right? Why not just say um, that he, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is Birabbi Nas and suffice with that? Right? Why specify that he is Lord and King and God? And some of the scholars of tafsir they say um, that the reason for this, and Allah Azza wa Jalla knows best, is because each one highlights a specific attribute of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? And so, for example, in the linguistic sense, Rabb, as we said, is someone who overlooks, right? Someone who uh, nurtures someone who who looks after. So a rub in the linguistic sense can be in a very small scale. You say, for example, Rabbuddaw, right? Rabbuddaw is the Lord of the manor, right? Lord of the house, meaning the father, right? Or the person who's in charge of the household. In Arabic language, linguistically, the word rub can be used to describe that individual. Because as we said last week, it comes from the same root word of tarbiyah, which means to give upbringing, nourishment, you know, look after, care for, and so on and so forth. So it's very restricted, right? So a rub necessarily doesn't necessarily have wider influence than on something which is very restricted. Whereas a malik, which is king, has wider influence. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says he is the rub because there is a very intimate type of connection with a person. That's the person who looks after you. That's the person who provides for you. That's the person who sustains you. That's the person who cares for you, who, who spends year after year, day after day, month after month, in your upbringing and looking after you and caring for you. Whereas the malik, a king, is someone who looks after the general affairs. Right? They have a wider scope of authority. They're the ones who set laws. Right? They're the ones who decide who's rewarded and who's punished. They're the ones who decide what is right and what is wrong and so on and so forth. And then you have ilah, which is God, right? And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is, uh, is the God of mankind. And God obviously encompasses within it every single name and attribute of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Allah azza wa focuses on these three different attributes of himself subhanahu wa ta'ala because each one alludes to something slightly differently. Each one is either slightly more general or more specific. Some of the scholars of tafsir, they also said, that Allah focuses on these three because they refer, they refer to the three stages of a person's life, right? The three stages of life. The first stage being childhood. So Allah says, nas. He is the Lord of mankind. Because a child requires that aspect of tarbiyah more than an adult, right? More than someone in old age, right? So the three stages that they're referring to, childhood, adulthood, and old age. A child requires more tarbiyah. They need someone to provide for them. They need someone to sustain them. They need someone to care for them. They need someone to look out for their well-being. And the Lord or the name Rabb, many of the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala go back into the name Rabb. Like As-Sami' and Al-Basir and Al-Razzaq and Al-Khaliq. Many of the names of Allah azza wa jalla that refer to um, you know, his lordship. Allah azza wa jalla is being a lord and a creator. Many of them come back to that name, Rabb. So that's the stage of childhood. 
And then you have the stage of adulthood. Adults, what do they require more than anything else? Leadership. Right? And so Allah says, for them, Malikin Nas. He is the king of mankind. Because adults need direction, they need leadership, they need someone to follow, right? And that's why in all of our structures in society, there is a hierarchy, right? You work for someone, or you're the employer and people work for you, right? You have a government that leads the people. You have all of these structures of society because we need leadership and we need that type of discipline and order within our lives. And then you have Ilah, which is God. And some of the scholars said that that's the name that most befits people in old age. Because once a person reaches that age, you know, they're past 60, they're past 70, they've retired. Now they're thinking of the next stage in life, which will be their death and what comes after death, right? And that's why you find people generally at that age spend more of their time in the masjid, more time reading the Qur'an, more time thinking about the next stage of life. Whereas someone in childhood or someone in the early years of adulthood, even in their 30s and 40s, doesn't think so much about death and that stage because they're so preoccupied in the here and now, right? For them, death is still a long way off, right? Especially now with all of these, you know, like, you know, the average lifespan is 70 this and 80 this and so on. People are lulled into that full sense of security. And so we think, okay, we have 30, 40 years to worship Allah, right? We have 30 years to, like, Hajj is the, is the common one, right? People say, I'll make Hajj after I retire, right? I have lots of time before I make Hajj, plenty of time. Plenty of time before I need to stop praying salah. Plenty of time before I need to stop worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the point is that in that age, people think more about Allah azza wa jalla as their God because they're more worried about end of life and death and akhirah and yawm al-qiyamah and so on and so forth. So those are the three names that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala specifies here because they refer to, this is the take of some of the scholars of tafsir. So that's the first verse. Right? And Allah Azza wa Jal, as we will see throughout this surah, He ends more or less every single verse with the word An-Nas. Right? Even though Allah Azza wa Jal is not just Bi-Rabbi nas and I think we mentioned this point last week, Allah isn't just the Lord of mankind, He's the Lord of everything. And He's not just the King of mankind, He's the King of everything. And He's not just the God of mankind, He is the God of everything. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala specifies mankind over and over again. Nas, Nas, Nas. And one of the reasons for that is number one, because of the context of the surah. Because the surah is about seeking protection from who? From shaitan, right? And from iblis, and from his armies, especially from the jinn, right? And so Allah Azza wa speaks about nas, 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 because that is the context of the surah. We are seeking protection from Allah Azza wa from the enemy that we cannot see, that is invisible to the naked eye that we are unable to defend ourselves from outwardly or apparently because there are no defenses that can stop shaitan like a barricade. You know, you can't put up a wall, you can't put up a, a, a locked door. There's nothing that you can do to ward off shaitan and iblis in that sense. The protection is all internal. It's protection of the soul and the heart and the inner protection that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala refers to. And the second reason is to show honor to this Species, this creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? And we mentioned last week the statement of Ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah when he spoke about the righteous, pious believer. Right? And how they reach a stage that is higher, more honorable than the angels. Whereas that same person, when they distance themselves from Allah, they disbelieve in Allah azza wa jal, they become worse than the animals and the cattle as Allah azza wa jal mentions in the Quran. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala honors mankind right? by specifying them. He is the Lord of mankind and the King of mankind and the God of mankind. So that's the first verse that we discussed last week. Verse number two, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then says, Malikin Nas. And verses two and three, God of, uh, King of mankind, God of mankind, Malikin Nas, Ilahin Nas, they are an addition to verse number one. It is giving further and more explanation to the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the names of Allah azza wa jal that we should be prote- seeking protection from, right? In. Because as we know, when it comes to making dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, one of the great etiquettes of dua is what? Is that we choose names and attributes of Allah that are relevant to the dua that we're making, right? So for example, if you want to seek a child, as, the, as, you know, as Allah mentions in the Quran, 
in the stories of the prophets and the du'as of the prophets, what is one of the most appropriate names to ask Allah by? When you're seeking a child, offspring. Right? What is the name that is often mentioned? That Allah is Al-Wahhab. Wahhab means what? The bestower. Right? And so you choose the name that is appropriate to the dua that you're making. If it's provision and wealth, you use the name, for example, Razak. If you're seeking Allah's mercy and forgiveness, you'll use the names Al-Ghafoor, Al-Rahman, Al-Rahim, Al-Tawwab. Right? And so the names of Allah that are appropriate to the dua that you're making, that is the, the names that, are, that you should use. Right? That's from the sunnah. And so when it comes to this dua, right, this type of dua, and this is a dua of protection, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us the three names that we need to focus on. Number one, that Allah is Lord. Right? Number two, that Allah is King. And number three, that Allah is a God. Because not every Lord is a King, and not every King is a God. Right? But Allah alone is Lord and King and God. And that includes everything. So once you ask Allah with these three names, that is everything. Everything that you need in order to seek protection, it is every single name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that can give you strength in this regard. So verse number two, Allah Azza wa Jalla says, Malikin Nas. He is the king of mankind. Now in the Quran, right, the word um, Malik right, is mentioned a number of times. And in fact, three very similar names of Allah Azza wa Jalla are mentioned in the Quran. Three very similar names. All of them kind of referring to kingship and dominion and ownership. Three of them are mentioned in the Quran. The first of them is the one that we've mentioned here in Surah An-Nas, which is Malik, right? Which means king. What's the second one? Second one in Surah Fatiha. Malik, right? Maliki yawmiddin, right? And Malik means owner, right? King and owner. And the third name, which is very similar, that is mentioned uh, once or twice, once in the Quran, I think, is Malik. Malik. At the end of, in the final verse of Surah Al-Qamar. Allah Azza wa Jalla says, إِنَّ الْمُتَّقِينَ فِي جَنَّاتٍ وَنَهَرٍ فِي مَقْعَدِ صِدْقٍ عِنْدَ مَلِيكٍ مُقْتَدِرٍ Indeed, the muttaqin will be in gardens and rivers, meaning in Jannah. And they will have a seat of honor by Al-Malik. Right? Malik means king also. It's the same as Malik. Malik is a more eloquent way of saying Malik. Right? It is still kingship. But in our, because you know, they have what they call Siyaq Al-Mubalaqa. It's when you go to, um, you know, you, you enhance something and you emphasize something even more. Right? So for example, you have Ghafoor and then you have Ghaffar. Right? Ghafir, Ghafur, Ghaffar. These are mentioned in the Quran, right? Ghafir al-Zambi. Ghafur al-Rahim. Al-Ghaffar. These are all referring to the same attribute of Allah, and that is forgiveness. But they increase in eloquence and they increase in emphasis. Right? And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, likewise, Malik is a more eloquent way of saying Malik. Increases in emphasis, increases in eloquence. Right? And similar to it is the, is the dua that's from the adhkar of the morning and the evening, right? Where Allah, uh, where the Prophet ﷺ taught us to say, "Rabb kulli shayin wa malika." He is the Lord of everything and its King. But he didn't use the word Malik. He said Malika. Rabb kulli shayin wa malika, right? And that's what we have at the end of Surah Al-Qamar: "Fi maqadi sidqin, inda malikim muqtadir." These three names are very similar in meaning. And one of the things that shows that they're very similar in meaning, they all refer to obviously kingship, ownership, dominion, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala owning everything. One of the, um, the ways that you know that they're very similar is in Surah Fatiha. Because in that verse, Maliki Yawmideen, there are two readings. Right? The first is Maliki, and the second one is Maliki. Right? One means the owner of the Day of Judgment, the other one means the king of the Day of Judgment. So in Surah Fatiha, you can read that word both ways. Maliki and Maliki. Right? In Surah Ali Imran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, mulk. Say that he is Allah, the owner of dominion, the owner of kingdom. 
right? And you can't say Malikul Mulk, right? It is Malikul Mulk, right? In that verse, there is only one reading, and that is Malikul Mulk. And then in Surah Nas now, there is also only one way of reading. You can't say Malikin Nas. That would be incorrect, right? It is Malikin Nas. He is the king of mankind, right? Why these subtle differences? Because in Surah Fatiha, the context of Surah Fatiha, or the context of the verse, is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is speaking about his dominion and his ownership of the Day of Judgment. Because someone who owns something doesn't necessarily have power over it day to day. Right? So for example, you may have owned a house, but it's on rent. Day to day, even though you own the property, you have no say over what goes on day to day. You have no power, you have nothing. Right? You are the owner of the property, but you've leased it to someone, you've rented it to someone, they are the people who kind of like are kings of it day-to-day, if you like. Right? They're the ones who kind of run things on a day-to-day basis. So just because you own something, doesn't mean that you have power over it. Right? Or if you're given day-to-day power over something, doesn't mean that you own it. Right? Reverse the example of the person who's leasing the house. They lease the house on a day-to-day basis, six months, a year, two years, it's theirs. Within reason, they can do whatever they want, right? They can paint the walls, they can, whatever they want. However, do they own the property? Can they sell it? No. Right? Can they, you know, extend the property? No. Right? They can't do certain things because they don't have ownership. So when Allah speaks about the day of judgment, that is the day that belongs only to Allah. No one else has a share of the ownership. But at the same time, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also will be the one who will decide what goes on on that day. Right? Nothing will be deputized, nothing will be given to anyone else to decide. It is all Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Whereas in Surah Ali Imran, Allah says, Allah is the one who owns kingdom. Meaning what? That He gives it to whomsoever He wills in this world. Believers, disbelievers, pious people, righteous people, evil and corrupt people. Allah is the one who owns kingdom and He gives it to whomsoever He wills. Right? But he is not the king in the sense that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala isn't the one who approves of everything that those people do. If there's a corrupt person like Pharaoh or like Abu Lahab, Abu Jahl, and what they do, Allah isn't responsible for that. But Allah is the one who gives kingdom to whomsoever he pleases. Whereas now in Surah Nas, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Maliki uh, Nas. He is the king of mankind. Because his ownership has already been established in the first verse and it's established in the third verse. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants us to know that he is the one who also directs our affairs. Right? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who directs our affairs on a day-to-day basis. Meaning that Allah azza wa everything is under his decree. Everything is under his power. So when you're seeking refuge and protection, you go to someone who has what? The ability to help you. Right? Don't go to someone who can't help you, doesn't know how to help you. It's outside of their remit of ability to help you, beyond their capability to help you. Those people can't help you. Right? And that's why when we need advice or we need help, we look for and search for, we try to anyway, search for the most appropriate person. Right? You need help with something, you go to someone that has some sway. Right? You have a problem with an individual, you find someone who's close to that person that can maybe intercede on your behalf. Right? This is what we do as humans. We go to people who have a measure of control. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying that when it comes to shaitan and iblis, there is only one power that can stop him. And that is the power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is Allah azza wa jalla. And he is malikin nas. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us that he is malikin nas, the king of mankind. And you find this like uh, in the Quran that Allah azza wa jalla often uses similar words in different contexts like Malik and Malik and Malik and so on, right? And Allah Azza wa in the Quran also he uses um, you know the name Malik comes a number of times in the Quran فَتَعَالَ اللَّهُ الْمَلِكُ الْحَقِّ like in Surah Taha at the end of Surah Hashar وَاللَّهُ الَّذِي لَا إِلَّهَ إِلَّا هُوَ الْمَلِكُ الْقُدُّوسِ right? So the name Al-Malik appears a number of times in the Quran. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is Malik al-Nas. Malik meaning what? Meaning the one who is the king of mankind. 
And then the next verse, verse number three, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala further gives us an explanation of himself, right? Further gives us another attribute, another characteristic of himself subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this time it is his uluhiya, his divinity. Ilahin nas. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the God of mankind. And Allah azza wa jal by saying that he is the God of mankind shows to us that when we come to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala seeking protection from Iblis, it is not just an issue of what is materialistic and open and physical and apparent. Right? It's not just about the issue of you know, things that we can see and things that we can touch and feel and hear, things that we understand. There is an element of the divine in this, an element of the unseen in this, an element of things that are beyond our comprehension. So we turn to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because He is the one who is our God. Right? He is the one that is worthy of worship. And so when you look in the story of Iblis, right, especially in the story of Adam and Iblis, and it's mentioned a number of times in the Quran, Surah Baqarah, Surah Al-Araf, Surah Sad, it's repeated a number of times in the Quran. One of the things that Iblis said when Allah Azzawajal told him to leave, right, that he's outcast, that he's cursed, is that he made an oath to Allah that he would misguide all of mankind. Meaning that this creation, meaning Adam alayhi salam, that you, O Allah, gave preference to over me, honored over me, I will not rest until I misguide all of his children. But for him, it was personal. Iblis takes this very personally. I will not rest until I misguide all of his people. Right? And Allah Azza wa mentions in the Quran that he asked Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to give him respite. Right. Oh Allah, give me a respite until the day of judgment. Meaning what? Meaning, oh Allah, don't kill me. Oh Allah, don't punish me. Give me respite. Allow me to live until the day of judgment. And Allah said to him, Innaka minal You are from those who have been given respite. So he will live from the time of Adam and before he was alive before him, all the way until Yom al Right? He will live. And at the same time, he is given by the permission of Allah the reign and the ability to do what he set out to do. And that is, I will misguide all of them. But then he gives the clause. Right? And that's what it comes down to, Ilahin Nas. He makes an exception. Except, O oh Allah, for your sincere servants. Those I cannot misguide. Those, your protection for them, your divine care and protection is so great and so strong that I cannot harm them. إِلَّا عِبَادَكَ مِنْهُمُ الْمُخْلَصِينَ And Allah Azza wa Jal mentions in the, other, in the other verse in Surah Araf, لَآتِيَنَّهُمْ مِنْ بَيْنِ أَيْدِيهِمْ وَمِنْ خَلْفِهِمْ وَعَنْ أَيْمَانِهِمْ وَعَنْ شَمَائِلِهِمْ وَلَا تَجِدُ أَكْثَرَهُمْ شَاكِرِينَ O oh Allah, I will approach them from the front and the back, the right and the left, and you will find most of them being ungrateful. Right? Most of them will turn away from you. And that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, إِنَّ عِبَادِي لَيْسَ لَكَ عَلَيْهِمْ سُلْطَانٍ As for my servants, you have no power or authority over them. Right? So even Iblis with all of his power, all of his armies, all of his strength, all of his weapons, all of his tactics, all of his traps and plans, when it comes before Allah, none of it matters. Right? None of it. It's futile, it's weak, it's feeble. Not, not, none of it has an ounce of strength before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. لَيْسَ لَكَ عَلَيْهِمْ سُلْطَانٍ You have no power, no authority over them. إِلَّا مَنِ اتَّبَعَكَ مِنَ الْغَاوِينَ Except for those from the misguided who choose to follow you. Those are the ones that he has power over. As for everyone else, Allah azza wa gives them that divine care and protection. And that's why when you turn to Allah and you seek protection in Allah, for example, as we said with isti'adha, a'udhu billahi minash shaitanir rajeem, or you seek refuge and protection in Allah from any harm, right? Whether it be in Surah Nas, the, the harm of shaitan and iblis and the jinn, or as we will come to in Surah Falaq, the outward harm of sorcerers and magician and, and jealousy and all of the other external harms that we have, none of that can have any power in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because Allah's divine care and protection is greater and stronger, more formidable than any of these other, other you know, so-called strengths and powers. So Allah Azza wa highlights these issues to us 
in these verses. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Ilahin nas, right? Because every single attribute of Allah, every single name of Allah goes back to this one name and attribute. And that is the name Allah. Right? Everything else goes back to that. Right? And that's why as we, and I think we mentioned this point before, right? That's why we say that Allah has 99 beautiful names, right? We don't say usually Al-Malik has 99 names, right? Or Al-Quddus has 99 names, or Al-Qayyum has 99 names. The default name that we use is Allah. Because all of those other names are therefore understood when we say the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Allah Azza wa Jal gives us these three names, that He is Rabbul Nas, the Lord of Mankind, Malikin Nas, the King of Mankind, Ilahin Nas, the God of Mankind. Some of the scholars, they, uh, like Ibn Qayyim rahimahullah, he said, why doesn't Allah Azza wa Jal uh, add a wow, right, the letter wow in these verses? Why doesn't Allah Azza wa Jal say, قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ النَّاسِ وَمَلِكِ النَّاسِ وَإِلَهِ النَّاسِ Right, that I seek refuge in Allah from the God of mankind and the King of mankind and, sorry, the Lord of mankind and the King of mankind and the God of mankind. Why is there no wow? And he said it's to show that it all refers to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's not more than one person that we're calling upon or one deity that we're calling upon. It is all Allah. Because the and in the Arabic language can be understood to mean multiple people or multiple reference points. Like we say, you know, this is Ahsan and Naseem and Naveed and Amin. This means and, 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 right? It's referring to different people. Whereas Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is referring to himself, right? And so Allah azza wa jal doesn't add a well, but rather he simply says, Rabbil nas, Malikin nas, Ilahin nas, right? There are further explanations and further characteristics of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Sorry? Ibn Qayyim. Ibn Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala. Ibn Qayyim, by the way, um, uh, he has, a, like from his various works, he has a book in, like tafsir, a book of the, the people have gathered. His tafsir, it's not a full tafsir, but he has like many statements of tafsir. Um, and he also has other books in which he mentions like many of these points. Right? So Ibn Qayyim rahimahullah was an amazing scholar and he has like, you know, amazing um, insights and tafsir and contemplations into the Quran. So, uh, that's a point that is made by um, Ibn Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala. Do we have any questions so far? Okay, so the question is, why do we just seek refuge, or why does the, the Quran or the Surah end with just a, um, a reference point towards humankind and not the jinn, even though the jinn also obviously can be misguided, can be evil, and so on and so forth. So, um, one of the reasons, as we mentioned, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala specifies humans is because of the honor aspect and because the majority of the enemies of Iblis are the humans and that's the ones that he's focusing on, the children of Adam and so on. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala therefore focuses on those aspects as well. However, there is an indication that it refers to both man and humans and jinn, right? And the first indication is in the surah itself, right? Right? That Allah azza wa jal refers to both of them, right? At the end he refers to both the jinn and the humans. And the second um, point regarding that is in the Arabic language, as some of the scholars of, uh, of Arabic mention, the word nas in this context can be used to refer to both humans and jinn. It can be understood to refer to both humans and jinn because in Arabic and in the Quran itself, sometimes the jinn are described in words that we would use for humans. So for example, in Surah Al-Jinn, Allah Azza wa Jalla says, وَأَنَّهُ كَانَ رِجَالٌ مِّنَ الْإِنسِ يَعُوذُونَ بِرِجَالٍ مِّنَ الْجِنِّ And there used to be men from the humans who would seek refuge from men from the jinn. Right? And Allah Azza wa Jalla calls them rijal, right? men. And these words are words that are usually used for humans, not for the jinn. Right? So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions this, and because of that some of the scholars said that even though the surah, because of the context of the surah, it focuses on humans, 
However, it was referring to both the um, you know, the, the jinn and the uh, and the humans. And that is an interesting point, right? Does the shaitan, like as we know from the hadith and we're going to discuss now, when it comes to the whisperings of shaitan, right? We know that the shaitan flows in the human body like blood and all those hadith whispers to humans and so on and so forth. Does shaitan or iblis do the same for the jinn? Right? That's like, and, and there were some scholars and I think maybe we'll come upon some of the points that are related to that issue. Some of the scholars like from the tafsir, it seems to point to the fact that they think that, yes, shaitan also does the same for the jinn. Another said, no, there's no proof for this, right? We don't have any proof that he flows in, you know, or even if the jinn have blood in that sense, or if he flows in them the same way, or whatever. That's something that is beyond our comprehension and our understanding. However, without doubt, as we know, there are believing jinn and disbelieving jinn. Right? And there are pious jinn and unpious jinn, impious jinn. There are jinn that are good and jinn that are evil and corrupt and so on. That's something which is well established within the Quran and within the Sunnah. Any other questions? Any questions from anyone here? Sisters, brothers? Okay. So verse number four. Right. So now we've sought refuge in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala using three of his characteristics, three of his attributes. That is the Lord of mankind, the King of mankind, the God of mankind. And then Allah Azza wa Jalla in verse number 4 he says min sharril waswasil khannas what is it that we're seeking refuge from min shar from the evil of right and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions the evil right? and the word shar in the arabic language means evil right it is the opposite of good and the opposite of what is pure and what's interesting is in the arabic language if you look at the root word of shar it also refers to things which spread, right? Things which scatter, right? Things which which uh, which fly, right? Which spread very quickly, and that's um, why in the Arabic language, sparks that come from a fire. So you know, like if you go to um, like a blacksmith and he's hitting on, on fire, like iron that's been been um, placed in fire, you get sparks, right? When he hits the hammer on the on the on the boiling iron, sparks emanate, right? In the Arabic language, that is called sharar. Sharar, right? From the same word as shar. Sharar, meaning sparks which fly from fire, right? And so the, the scholars or the lexicographers of the Arabic language, they said that therefore shar has a meaning that it becomes uh, easily spread, right? It's something which easily spreads. And that's something which is known, right? Because when you have like, a, or you try to instill something which is good, it often takes a very long time to create a good habit. But to break that good habit can be very easy. Right? Evil spreads far quicker than good. Right? So trying to establish something good and trying to make something which is good is very hard. Whereas spreading something which is evil is far easier. And that's why in Islam, you know, like we have sins like an-namima, right? which is spreading gossip. Right? Why? Because those are things that spread very quickly and very easily right? amongst uh, friends, amongst the family, amongst the community, amongst the society, rumors that spread, gossip that spreads, right? So in the hadith of Ibn Abbas anhum in Bukhari and Muslim, when the Prophet وسلم, passes by two graves, right? And he says, These two inhabitants, these two people in their graves are being punished, and they're not being punished because of something major, not a major sin. فَكَانَ يَمْشِي بِالنَّمِيمَةِ وَأَمَّا الْآخَرُ فَكَانَ لَا يَسْتَتِرُ مِنَ الْبَوْرِ As for one of them, then he would spread gossip and rumors. And as for the second, he wouldn't safeguard himself, his clothes, his body, from urine, right? from the splashes of urine and from his own impurity. So, the Prophet is saying, this isn't, you know, it's not a, like, or, you know, some of the scholars said, does it mean it's not a major sin? Or does it mean that it's not something that we would consider to be major? They're being punished, but it's not for something major, meaning me and you and general people don't think it's a big deal, right? Spread a rumor or just pass on, you know, uh, gossip that you've heard and, you know, all of this kind of like telltelling that that people do. You know, one person says this, you spread it to the next and this and this, and then it spreads amongst the community, right? And the problem is that if that causes harm, it becomes a greater issue. And some of the scholars said that it is a major sin. Because one of the punishments of the people of the grave, as the Prophet told us وسلم, is someone who spreads a rumor that reaches the horizon. 
meaning crosses the globe. Right? The whole community believes this or is spread it to that extent that everyone is on it. And the Prophet ﷺ said that in that grave, a person, the angel will come to a person and he will take like a claw and he will place it into the right inside cheek of a person's mouth and he will pull it with such force that it will rip until the back of his neck. And then he will take it out and he will come to the left side of his mouth and do the same, rip it with such force that it will rip to the back of his neck. But by the time he's done the left side, the right side will have been cured. So he will come back and he will do the right side and the left will be cured. And he will go back to the left and he will continue to alternate between left and right until Yom Al-Qiyamah, until Allah establishes the hour. Showing the severity right, of something that we consider to be relatively easy or relatively not, not a big deal and so on. And that's one of the meanings of shar. Right? One of the meanings of shar. Something which spreads. Right? And that's why in Islam, the things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala generally has made haram, it's because they have within them that capacity to spread and cause more harm. Right? They do more evil. Backbiting, jealousy, hatred, pride, arrogance. Right? Rarely are these things confined within a person. They may be confined within a person, but often you will find signs or actions or words that emanate and then harm others as a result of them. Right? And then you have stealing and theft and murder and you know zina and all of these types of issues that cause harm. Right? And that's why when the Prophet ﷺ, sometimes he would take that aspect of understanding and explaining the severity and the danger of a sin. Right? Like when the, when the young man came to the Prophet ﷺ and he said, O Messenger of Allah, allow me to commit zina. What did the Prophet ﷺ say to him? The famous hadith, right? Would you like someone to do the same with your mother? with your sister, with your daughter, with your aunt, right? all of those relations. And the man kept saying, no, 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 because he never thought of that aspect, right? That issue, that it's not just me, but the harm that I am doing towards others, right? And that's why, you know, dhulm, right? as Allah Azza wa Jalla often says, dhulm or oppression is one of the, the gravest sins, right? When you harm others. And many of, the, many of the sins that we perform, not all of them, but many of them, and especially the major ones, are because they are major because of that aspect of harming others. Right? You include others in the harm that you do. And that is from the meanings of the word shar. Shar has that ability to spread. Right? And so when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this verse, or in this surah, when he says that it is evil, right? shaitan's whisperings are evil, right? because that's what he says, min sharril, Allah Azza wa describes them as evil. Allah didn't just say, we seek refuge in the God of mankind, the Lord of mankind, the King of mankind, from Al-Wiswas, right? From the one who whispers. But rather he said, from the evil of the one who whispers, the whisperer. Right? Min sharril waswasil khannas. Why add the word shar? Because of this reason. Because when shaitan comes and whispers, it's not something which just affects you. Often, where he whispers and the harm that he wants you to do and the sin that he wants you to perform and commit, it is something which will then go and affect others as well, directly or indirectly. So obviously when you're harming someone else, and it can take different forms, one of those forms is that you have people that you then encourage to sin alongside you. Right? So now not only are you sinning, but you're encouraging other people to backbite. You're encouraging other people to look down upon others. You're encouraging other people to commit oppression, to steal, to murder, all of those things, right? So you, that evil is now no longer just yours, it is something which has spread. Or the harm of what you did has spread. So even though those people aren't directly responsible, you're the one responsible, I'm responsible, but the people that I have harmed, my evil has affected them, Right? when you steal from someone. It's not just the fact that you took their money, right? It's the psychological harm that you do. That peace person no longer feels safe in their home. They're afraid to go home. They don't know if one person can break in, tomorrow another person can break in. Every time there's a sound going off in their home, there's a knock and so on, they're on edge, they're jumpy. Someone rings on the door, they're not sure, they don't want to open the door. And all of those effects, psychological effects, emotional effects, all of the harm that we can't see. But that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows and that Allah Azza wa Jalla records, and that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala will hold people to account for on Yom Al Qiyamah, right? And understanding that aspect, that deeper aspect of sin, of harm, of evil, 
that's one of the reasons or one of the things that stops you from then doing the harm, right? Of being extremely afraid, like the companions radiallahu anhum ajma'in used to be. Afraid, you know, even if they said a word to someone and they felt that that person was displeased, was harmed, was upset just because of it was unintended. They didn't mean to harm someone, they didn't mean to hurt that person's feelings, but they felt that that's what it is, they would immediately go and apologize and try to rectify the issue, right? Because it's, that's where the danger is. Like when uh, Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, in, in the hadith, he's sitting in, in the Meccan days with Bilal and with Suhaib and with Ammar ibn Yasir and some of the poorer companions, the freed slaves, Salman al-Farisi and so on. And as they're sitting, they see Abu Sufyan walk by. And Abu Sufyan at that time isn't a Muslim. He's the leader of Quraysh. He's the arch enemy of Islam. He's one of the architects of trying to demolish the Muslims and everything that Islam stands for. So one of them made the one of the poorer companions. He made the comment and he said that this enemy of Allah, his neck hasn't been removed by our swords yet. Right? We haven't struck off the neck of this enemy of Allah, and they said it because they've been oppressed. They, these are people who are being tortured and persecuted and they want to see the end of this man because he is the symbol of the evil that's been done towards them. So Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu becomes upset and he says to them, how can you say this about the leader of Quraysh? Because yes, he's a disbeliever and yes, he's an oppressor and so on, but he is still the leader of Quraysh and Abu Bakr is a Quraysh. Right? That's part of the tribal system. Right? It's, he has an affinity towards him because of his station and his status. So he went to the Prophet وسلم, Abu Bakr an, and he told him about what had transpired, what those companions said. What did the Prophet say? وسلم, he said, Oh Abu Bakr, perhaps you hurt them. You offended them. And if you did so, then you have displeased Allah. So Abu Bakr an, went back and he apologized. And he said, did I offend you? And they said, no, Abu Bakr. Right? Look at how like, precise and accurate the companions are in these types of issues, right? The emotions, right? And so on. In the other hadith, where Abu Bakr radiallahu and Umar are talking to one another, right? they're having a conversation, and Abu Bakr radiallahu and Umar, it becomes heated. And so Abu Bakr says something to Umar that offends him, upsets him, says something that he shouldn't have. And Umar radiallahu and becomes upset. But he doesn't respond, doesn't say anything back. So Abu Bakr immediately realizes, radiallahu an, and these are the two greatest, senior, most beloved companions of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Abu Bakr radiallahu an, immediately regrets it and he apologizes. But Umar radiallahu an is upset so he ignores him and he goes back home. Abu Bakr is, is upset because he said something to Umar and Umar didn't accept his apology. So he goes to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam to explain the situation so that perhaps the Prophet ﷺ could advise him about what to do, or how to rectify the situation. And whilst he's doing this, Umar goes home, he cools down, so he comes out to search for Abu Bakr, and he finds him sitting with who? With the Prophet ﷺ. So when the Prophet ﷺ sees Umar, he becomes angry. Right? Who becomes angry? The Prophet ﷺ at who? At Umar. And he starts to say, why don't you leave my companion alone? Meaning Abu Bakr, why don't you leave him alone? Why do you harm him? And Abu Bakr is there saying, what? O Messenger of Allah, it was me. I was the one who harmed him. I was the one who said something that I shouldn't have said. I'm the one who offended him, not the other way around. But the Prophet is saying what? He's saying, why do you harm Abu Bakr? Abu Bakr is the one who when no one else supported me, he stood with me. When no one else gave me their wealth, he sacrificed everything for me. When no one else was willing to believe in me, he stood by me. So why don't you leave him alone? And this hadith is an amazing hadith when it comes to looking at things like emotions and feelings and how you can offend someone and so on and so on and how to weigh these issues and so on. But look at how precise the companions are when it comes to people's feelings and how they may... And this is an indirect, unintended consequence of a statement made by Abu Bakr radiallahu right? And that's the same thing with shah, evil, has unintended consequences. Like the hadith of, you know, like, uh, like we know, for example, when a person is trying to make dua, like the hadith in which the Prophet ﷺ told us of the man in the desert and he's making dua and so on, but his food is haram, his drink is haram, his clothing is haram, so how can Allah respond to him? Because now his evil isn't just something that he did, 
wrong, he took money from alcohol or he took money from interest and so on. It is something which has now permeated throughout his body. His own existence is being nourished upon haram. Not only is his existence being nourished in haram, but then who else? His wife, his children, the people that live with him, the people that is responsible for his parents, all of the people around him, the food that he uses to feed them, the drink that he gives to them, the clothes that he, that he clothes them with, the shelter that he provides for them, all of that is used from something which comes from a haram source. Right? And that doesn't mean that those people are responsible. It's not their fault. They have no, you know, if, if, it's, if they're not involved in that, that's, you know, that's something different. But the point is that look at the indirect harm that is caused because of sin, right? Because of disobedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's why shar is called shar, right? And so when shaitan comes and he wants us to disobey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it is often not, you know, and Ibn Qayyim rahimahullah in one of his books, uh, he mentions the stages of shaitan's whispering, right? It's an amazing, like, um, insight. And he says that shaitan will always come in the first level that he always aspires for, and he has like six, seven levels that he mentions, and he tries to go, you know, from the smallest, and he keeps trying to go. But his main goal, level number one, the great prize, right, the main prize, is shirk. Right? Make someone commit shirk. Disbelief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Reject Allah azza wa jal. Right? And the second level, if he can't do that, is what? Bid'ah. Right? Innovation. Change the religion, twist the religion, add things to the religion, right? And like you know, like we see right now the season, right, of people doing things that isn't from the Sunnah of the Prophet Add your religion, change your religion, do something different in your religion. That's very prevalent, right? Bid'ah and innovations. That's the second level. And if you can't make you do the second level, what's the third level? Major sins, right? Major sins. Get a person to drink alcohol. Get a person to commit zina person to steal, person to commit murder, and so on, so the major sins, right? And if you can't do the major sins, level number five is the minor sins, right? Minor sins. Minor sin, one or two or three isn't the problem, but when they accumulate and they, and this is like a ladder, right? It's a step, stepping stone to the one above and the one above and the one above. And then if he can't make them commit major sins, what does he do? He makes them waste their time in things which are neither rewarding nor punishable. The mubahat. Things which are just permissible. person just wastes their time. Yes, that person isn't sinning, but shaitan can't get them to commit major minor sins. This person has a level of iman. But instead, what does he make them do? Okay, at the very least, he won't get more reward. Doesn't come closer to Allah. Won't worship Allah anymore. And then, if he can't do that, what's the next level? The good that they do, the good deeds that they do, diminish that reward. Right? Wreck them as much as you can. So that's the hadith that we hear, you know, like of shaitan coming to a person in their prayer. Or shaitan trying to come to a person and, and make them show off. Or trying to come and impress someone else. All of those things that we're, or we're heedless and we're neglectful. Or we don't have the sincerity or we're not mindful of certain things. Or we're not doing the actions in according to the sunnah. Diminish the level of reward as much as you can. So when someone's strong in iman, this is where he starts. Right? Get someone who's worshipping Allah, diminish that reward. And then once he's done that, get them to leave off some of the, not even the wajib, some of the sunnah acts. Right? Oh, it's okay, it's not like wajib anyway. It's not something you have to do. Right? There's no punishment. Allah won't punish you. It's okay, leave it. Do it tomorrow. Do it next week. And so shaitan makes us leave it. And then it becomes a habit, obviously. First time, second time, third time, after a week, two, three, four. Now it's become a habit. And now it's rare that you perform that sunnah act. That optional deed of worship. Right? And then shaitan carries on, right? slowly but surely. Oh, you know, you have other things to do, right? You don't have time to read Quran, you don't have time to go to that lecture, you've got, got to go shopping, right? got to go and do something else. And so he wastes our time, right? or makes us do stuff that isn't really, you know, it's not really important, but he busies our time in things that distract us and divert our attention from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then it's the minor sins. And then the minor sins build into major sins. And then there's one person falling into an innovation here or there and so on. Until you see, even till today, Muslims who read the Quran, who say, La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah, who do all of those things, but they will worship other than Allah. They commit shirk. They worship other than Allah. They sacrifice to other than Allah. They go around graves belonging to you know saints and whoever else. But the point is that they commit shirk and kufr in so many different aspects. And that is shirk. Right? That is the evil. 
And that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, some of the scholars of tafsir said, that Allah azza wa jal, when he said, min sharril waswasil khannas, it was to show the danger of shaitan. Right? Because if Allah azza wa jal says, from the whisperer, you see, whispers are something that most of us, you know, like when we think about whisper, whispers, what do we think? It's fairly innocent, right? Because when you, you know, that's what children do, really, right? Children whisper to one another, right? Adults don't really whisper, I mean, I don't know, maybe they do, but generally speaking, it's a child, a child thing to do, right? You whisper, right? You whisper to your friend, or there's a group of kids, and two kids are whispering, and so on. That's, that's kind of the kind of thing that children do. For most adults, we don't really think it's something major. It's not something, you know. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes shaitan as a whisperer, to ensure that we don't misunderstand, to ensure that we don't think that it's something you know, innocent, or something innocuous, or something which doesn't have a major impact. Allah Azza wa says, Min shar, from the evil, because it is extremely evil. Right? And his whisperings are not innocent. And his whisperings aren't something which you can just ignore. Right? Or something which doesn't, it's not important or it's not dangerous. His whisperings are extremely dangerous. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Min sharrin, waswasil, the whisperer. Right? And the whisperer is obviously referring to shaitan. And al-waswasa, you know, some of the scholars like in Arabic, the word waswasa is a, like a quiet sound that's placed in the ear, right? which is what a whisper is. It's like when you speak to someone in a very quiet voice, and only them and you can hear it. Right? No one else knows. And that's exactly what shaitan does. Shaitan comes and when he whispers to us, it's a very personal thing. No one else knows, right? No one else is privy to that, right? No one else knows what shaitan is whispering to us, and no one else really knows how we are responding internally to it until we manifest that in word or in action, right? It is a very personal thing that shaitan does. It is a whispering, meaning that it is something that shaitan does to every single person individually. And shaitan does so using every single person's weakness, Right? The issue that's most going to get them to sin or disobey Allah or become distanced from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because people are different. Some people, their weakness is wealth. Some people, you know, maybe it's people of the opposite gender. Some people, it's fame. Some people, it's power. Some people, it's arrogance. Some people, it's pride. Some people, it's jealousy. Everyone is different. Shaitan whispers to them in that way. Right? And that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Al-Qiyamah, what does He say to us? to show that we have to be aware of this. And that more importantly, Allah is aware of what shaitan whispers and how we will respond to that whispering. Allah says, بَلِ الْإِنسَانُ عَلَى نَفْسِهِ بَصِيرًا وَلَوْ أَلْقَى مَعَاذِيرًا Indeed, man is ever knowing of his own self. Meaning that you can fool every single other person, but you can't fool yourself and you can't fool Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You can make all the excuses in the world to your wife, to your parents, to your husband, to your children, to your friends, to the people in the masjid, to the imam, to everyone, right? You can make excuses. I was tired, I, my imams, this, whatever, right? Whatever the issue is, there are 101 excuses that you can make. But what does Allah say? You, deep down, know your reality. Right? And that's why like, it's a very interesting, like one of the issues in fiqh, you know, when someone comes to the imam and he says, it's the month of Ramadan, I can't fast because I'm not well. Right? We know that sickness is an, is an acceptable excuse to break your fast. It is not the duty of the imam to be a doctor. Right? It's not the duty of the imam to say to you, can you bring me a sick note right, from your doctor and then I will say to you, break your fast. No. You are responsible. So when you make that excuse, yeah, you can say to the imam, and the imam may be like, okay, fine, you look fine to me, but okay, if you're ill, you're ill, right? And you can say to everyone else, and you know, I'm ill, I'm ill, and everyone else can believe, but deep down, you know. You don't fool anyone else. At the end of the day, you only fool yourself, right? You're the one that harms yourself. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says this, right? Even if that person makes excuses. So you can make all the excuses, you can say what you want, but deep down you know your reality. You know whether you had the ability to do something or not, 
whether you had a valid excuse or not. The reason why you disobeyed Allah or the reason why you didn't perform that obligatory action before Allah, you know. Despite the excuses that you give and the reasons and the justifications that you may give to others, you know and Allah Azza wa Jal knows. Right? And that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Min sharril waswas. That's what shaitan does. Right? Shaitan whispers. Shaitan comes and he whispers. And, um, you know, and, and uh, many of the scholars of tafsir, they said that it refers to not just the whispering, but shaitan himself. So you seek refuge not only from the whispering of shaitan, it's not just about the whispering, it is from shaitan himself and the evil of shaitan. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, مِن شَرِّ الْوَسْوَاسِ الْخَنَّاسِ Al-Khannas is the one who runs away. Right? So Al-Waswas is the one who whispers, Al-Khannas is the one who retreats and flees. He's the one who runs away. So, Al-Khannas means to hide. Right? It means to retreat, it means to disappear. And so what it means is that Shaytan, and, and some of the scholars of Tafsir, they have a very nice uh, phrase concerning this name that Allah Azza wa uses to describe Shaytan. Al-Waswas right? Al-Khannas. And that is that Shaytan retreats so when you remember Allah, shaitan retreats. And when you're forgetful and heedless of Allah, shaitan returns and he whispers. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes him as not being absent, but rather as being khannas, meaning that he's hiding. Meaning that he's still there, but he hasn't left, he's not gone. He's there, but he's hiding. He's been pushed back. He's been pushed into hiding. What pushed him into hiding? Your remembrance of Allah. Your obedience of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You're making this ti'adah and saying, A'udhu billahi min shaitan rajim Your worship of Allah, whatever that act of worship may be, dhikr, Qur'an, charity, salah, whatever good deed that you're doing, when you're connected to Allah, shaitan retreats. And that's why, you know, the isti'adah and all of those hadith that we covered, when you feel that shaitan is coming to you, he's whispering to you, he's trying to overpower you, one of the greatest weapons that you have at your disposal is to say what? Because it is a dhikr of Allah. When you remember Allah, He is Al-Khannas. He retreats and is pushed into hiding. But when you forget about Allah, when you become heedless, when you're neglectful of Allah Azza wa Jal, what does He do? He comes back. He's not defeated, He retreats. Right? He hides and then He comes back and He starts again. Right? And that's why Sa'id ibn Jubayr, Rahimahullah is one of the scholars of the Tabi'een. He said, when man remembers Allah, shaitan hides. And when they forget about Allah, he comes and he starts to whisper to them again. And Qatada, Rahimahullah, who's also one of the scholars, the famous early scholars of Tafsir, he says, and this is, you know, this is like something which isn't established in the Sunnah, but he says that shaitan has, or the khannas, the shaitan that is whispering to us, has a trunk and he comes and he uses that trunk to whisper to us. And he also said that he has the head of a snake. And he describes, and these, by the way, are not established in any hadith that I have come across from the Prophet ﷺ, but this is something which some of the scholars of, of tafsir said. Um, other scholars of tafsir, they said that shaitan, he comes and he blows, or he whispers into the heart of the child of Adam. When that person is happy, and when that person is sad. Right? In times of happiness, elation, and in times of despair. Shaitan will come and he will use both opportunities to whisper to a person. So it's not just the case that when a person is sad, or when they're, for example, in despair or in sorrow, that's when shaitan comes. No, shaitan also comes in times of happiness. Right? Shaitan comes when people are on a high, when they're happy, when they're enjoying life. That is also a very common time for shaitan to come as well. And Ibrahim At-Taymi, rahimahullah, one of the scholars of the Salaf, he said that, that one of the first things that shaitan starts with is the wudu, to whisper it. Right? And that's diminishing the act of worship. So shaitan will come, and that's an example of what we said, right? what Ibn Qayyim, rahimahullah, says, because what does he do with the wudu? That you didn't make wudu properly. You broke your wudu. Water didn't touch each and every single part of your body. Right? And then he does the same in the salah, comes and whispers, right? Oh, you've broken your wudu, you passed wind. All of these issues. And that's why what did the Prophet told us, sallallahu alayhi wa that when shaitan comes, unless you're certain, 
right? For example, in the prayer, you smell something, you hear a sound, that you know that you've broken your salah, you ignore him. And likewise in the wudu, right? you ignore him. If you're pretty sure that you did your wudu properly, you ignore him. Because that is what shaitan does, and he whispers, and he starts with the small things, and then he continues, and he works his way up. Right? And inshallah, like we still have like um, a few num- number of things to say about these names of shaitan, but I think we will leave that to uh, next week, because it's, it's fairly long. So if there's any questions, inshallah, I'll, I'll, I'll take some questions, otherwise we'll conclude. So if shaitan comes to you in wudu to the extent that you makes you forget where you're at in your wudu, what do you do? You go back to what you're certain of. Right? So if you're certain, for example, that you had washed your face, then you carry on from there. And if you're not sure and you're completely like muddled, then you'll just start again. Right? And the same would be in the salah as well. Yeah, so so the general rule is that if you finish the act of worship, the act of worship was correct unless you have a reason to doubt it. Right? So for example in the salah, you finished your dhuhr and you're fairly certain it's four rak'ahs, and the shaitan comes to you and says, Actually you only pray three, you ignore him. Unless someone next to you was like, Actually you only pay three, right? You don't say, no, you're a shaitan, right? I'm going to ignore you. Right? That's like a proof, right? That someone's there watching you and saying, look, you only pay three. So that's different, right? Whereas if shaitan comes afterwards, but if it's during the prayer, then obviously you go back to, or during the wudu, like you said, then you go back to that point that you're certain. Um, you mentioned um, one of the things that shaitan could do is make you neglect your sunnah prayers on one of the lowest levels. So... When it comes to wither, you can read like one rakah, three rakah, etc. If somebody makes habit or continues to read one rakah, does that fall in the same category because it's a sunnah for you today? Okay, so the question is, um, when it comes to shaitan and the traps that he has, if shaitan, for example, in the wither prayer, makes us just read one, or we only read one wither prayer instead of three, is that also an example of shaitan coming and diminishing our act of reward? Um, Yes and no, in a way. Because as long as you're praying the witr, you've completed the sunnah, right? But some of the scholars would say that praying three witr is a better form of witr than praying one, right? And so it's better for you to do. But that's like, you know, as long as you're doing the act of worship, you know, that's... Because then remember, even in that act of worship, you know, for example, when you're praying the one, shaitan comes and he distracts you, right? So even in that one, you're not concentrating, you're heedless, your mind is elsewhere. Shaitan will always come and he will try to attack on those different levels and so on. Yeah. Any question from sisters? Yeah. So what was it that first you mentioned uh, Mankan Deepa knows their own reality? Surah Qiyamah. Ayahs 14 and 15. Just to go question, surely there's got to be a stage where just you've got to take hold of himself and take control. Because shaitan can come to him and say, you're on your head, you know, uh, introduce you on your head three times. You should be five times. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's why, like, the scholar said, the brother has a good point, and that is that, you know, there's got to be, like, a level where we say, you know, enough, because, you know, in, in sajda, if you just say, subhanahu rabbi three times, you can come and say, okay, you know, why do you say five times or seven or prolong the sajda and so on. And so that's why the scholars, like, they normally have something which they call adnal kamal, right? The, the least best that you can do, right? And so that's, for example, in the, in the ruku' three times, right? In the sajda, three times. Even though if you only say it once, it's enough. Your prayers, salah, your prayers, correct. Say, subhanahu rabbi al-azim once, subhanahu rabbi ala once, it's enough, right? But to say three times is the minimum best that you can do. Right? And so that's something which you should try. Like the wudu, if you wash your arm or your face once, it's enough. Right? By ijma, the three is the sunnah. Right? So it's like establishing number one, or trying to establish, for example, number one, the, the, the worship, the act of worship itself. And then once you've done that, to go to a higher level of ihsan, right? of doing it better. Because obviously the rewards are far greater as well. The more that you perfect that act of worship, the more that you excel in it. And Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. It's like ping pong. Sorry. <laughs> it's just you two. Going back and forth. Um, no, you're speaking about the different recitations, like Malikinas, Malikinas. Because if you're reading a surah, would you have to keep the same throughout, the same reading throughout? Or can you okay. change from So, we're actually going to come on, uh, not this particular point, but I will, inshallah, at some point give like a brief introduction into the science of qiraat because it's something which is going to 
um, you know, frequently be mentioned in the tafsir of the Quran. Um, so the question is, if you're reading in one qira'ah, can you chop and change in that same sitting? Right? Can you chop and change in the same sitting? Um, and, and there's like there's, there's a different context to that question. Number one would be if you're studying or if you're actually reading the qira'at and so on, then obviously it's fine because that's what you have to do when you're studying that science and so on. But in the general reading, or for example in the salah, right, can you like chop and change and so on? Um, if you ask the qira'at, they say no. Right? If you ask the qira'at, the experts of qira'at and so on, they say no. Shouldn't do that, right? Because you have, you know, like qawaid, uh, you have certain principles that you're reading with and so on, and therefore you should stick to that qira'at. Others said no, it's okay. Like a number of the scholars, and I think that's the opinion. I think, if I remember correctly, Imam Ahmad and Ibn Taymiyyah, and others, they said it's okay because kulluhu Quran. They said all of it's Quran, and you're commanded to read the Quran in the salah. So the fact that you change from one qira to another, it's still Quran, right? You didn't do anything. But the Qur'an would have an issue from, with that. And from a practical point of view, it's problematic. It's problematic because, for example, if someone behind you thinks you're making, because the tira'at, if someone behind you thinks you're making a mistake, they'll correct you, and you're trying to like, no, no, actually I was reading a different tira'at, right? That, like, you, uh, it becomes very confusing for the people listening, and for the people who are, for example, if it's tarawih, they're trying to correct you, if you make a mistake, and so on and so forth, it can become somewhat confusing. So I think it is better to keep to one tira'at. Is it wajib if someone did it? Is that, does it break the prayer? Oh, I don't think so, and Allah Azza wa knows best. This is probably a common question. Um, so obviously Allah gave um, shaitan respite until the uh, day of judgment. Um, but why would shaitan take such a big challenge, you know, knowing that he will be you know, doomed in hell forever? No, shaitan is already doomed. Right? So the question is, why would shaitan try to misguide people if it's going to lead to his punishment? Shaitan is already doomed. So his mission isn't trying to save himself. He's already been cursed. Allah Azza wa already cursed him to the day of judgment. He's already in the fire. His mission now is not to be there alone, to have as many of the children of Adam with him. That's the mission, right? So the mission, there's no, there was no hope for him anyway. But then Allah Azza wa placed this as a test for humankind, right? For mankind, this is their test, right? Shaitan is the one who's trying to misguide them. And we are told that the path of guidance is different from the path of shaitan. And Allah knows best. Okay, inshallah, we're going to stop there. Barakallahu feekum. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa sahbihi wa sahbihi